Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Ve salatu ve selamu Resulullah. Ve la alihi ve sahbihi ve menudâ. Ve masalli ve sallam ve zelu bârik. Ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sallam. Welcome everyone to Sunday evening. And um, we, last time we finished the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi. And I had said that the next topic that I was going to cover was the transcript of a lecture that Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah recently gave uh, on marriage as a um, something like a social institution and a cosmic reality or something like that. Some really cool title as Dr. Omar usually has. But I said that we would do that after we do something else uh, out of recognition for Black History Month. Um, Sure. Uh, whatever, whatever you feel inspired to do, I will accept. Um, trying to explain an incident that happened recently without giving it away, and I don't think I can. But uh, I'll just preface the the topic by saying that I think for I, I think it's hard to underemphasize how important Black History Month is. And uh, especially for, I mean, obviously in the Muslim community, we have, the Muslim community is very diverse. A good portion of our community is African-American. A good portion of our community does uh, come from Africa, like not many generations back, but just one or none. Um, so, but, I, you know, I, I think that it's just really important, especially for people who have not experienced um, what it means to be a person of color, specifically black in America. It's really, really important to take a lot of time, especially I think for Muslims of that description, it's really important to take time and study that and to reflect upon it and to understand it and to really kind of um, try to sit with it a little bit. and. Uh, make some make some sense out of it. I think that one of the formative experiences that I can recall in my life where I actually started to very briefly think about things, although it didn't last very long, was in middle school when they showed us the documentary Eyes on the Prize. Has everyone seen that one? Nobody? Like, you can find it on YouTube, Eyes on the Prize. Depending on the kind of stuff you're accustomed to watching, you know, like late at night might not be a good time. It's um, it's it's pretty graphic, especially you know some of the early parts. Um, but it's really good, and to really kind of get a feel for that and to understand that, like what what was the reality of the situation? And now, you know, there's this new, as some of you probably know, there's this new series on who killed Malcolm X on Netflix right now, and many people are watching it and stuff and. Uh, then there's been some articles shared kind of critiquing it I don't know if anyone's seen those yet but I just started seeing those today to me the big the big thing about that series regardless of the conclusions and stuff is that it's kind of like in every generation you need some sort of really good production about Malcolm so that people don't forget him and I had started to notice that a lot of younger people were very distanced from like the history of Malcolm and they didn't really understand it they didn't know it 
Whereas, like my generation, a lot of people read the autobiography, and then the the, the movie came out kind of like around that time, Spike Lee's film. So that kind of like brought it back in the radar, and. If regardless of like the conclusions and the contents and the critiques on the study and all that kind of stuff, at least it's putting it back on the radar for people. So to kind of like watch it and see clips and see Malcolm and see the way that he talked about things and dealt with things and stuff is really really good. Yes. I comment on that very briefly because I'm a high school teacher. I and then there are U.S. history books. There's a there's <coughs> there are very brief um, passages on Malcolm X and it talks about how he advocates violence. Yeah. And that's it. And then he's then compared to. Um, Martin Luther Dr. King, King, who's this an amazing guy who's nonviolent, and so that's that's the exposure they get. Yeah, usually anything that anyone knows about Malcolm, unless they're like had some sort of connection to black power, like Afrocentric circles, usually their only exposure to Malcolm is he's this crazy guy who hated white people, mm -hmm. and it's complete erasure of what happened in the last period of his life, and it's just really horrible. Um, so, alhamdulillah, you know. We, Malcolm's really important. Um, nonetheless, I, the point of all this is to say that Black History Month is important. And alhamdulillah, one of the blessings I think I had in college was to be able to take, thank you, Ms. a number of courses on like black history and movements in the 60s and the 70s and stuff like that. It was really good. Um, so I would encourage people to do that. Even if you don't feel like reading, at least watch something. You can start with Eyes on the Prize. Just, uh, you know. It's hard. Yeah. Some PBS. You can go on PBS.org. Yeah. Full 14 hours a Yeah, I found it on YouTube too, but I think it's bootlegged. Yeah. But it's if it's on PBS, that's good. <laughs> um, and you know, it's hard to watch. It's it's not easy to watch, but it's important to watch. And again, I I'm pretty. We watched it in middle school. I don't know if it was sixth grade or seventh grade, but we watched it in middle school. In any case, uh, I felt that you know we should do something for Black History Month, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. So uh, we're going to spend one or two sessions, depending on how long it takes, talk about the person that this book is about. This book is called One Woman's Jihad, and the subtitle <coughs> is called Nana Esma'u, Scholar and Scribe. So uh, we'll talk about her life, inshallah. May Allah have mercy on her. Nana is like a honorific title. Her name is Asma. Asma. One of the things that we noticed, that I noticed just in a couple of days in the Gambia as well, is that I could call in it, by the way, some people ask me, why do you keep saying the Gambia instead of Gambia? Because, like, the official name of the country actually includes the. So it's not just some weirdo thing that I'm saying. It's actually, <laughs> there's a handful of countries in the world. I don't know the other ones, but uh, I think the Yemen used to be one of them. I don't know if it still is, but. Uh, you know, it's in the Gambia is that a lot of times with the names and stuff they include the last haraka, which you don't usually in Arabic, but in their the local way they they do it is they include the last haraka. So like Abu Bakr he was called Bakri, because Abu Bakri, or um, who else did did we meet? Different people. They had a similar thing was going on with their names. So her name is Asma, but locally it's Asmau, Asmau, Nana Asmau. So. Uh, really interestingly, you know, in the beginning of this book, I thought it was a good book, by the way. I still have a lot of questions, but I thought it was a good book, if you want to read it. And, um, I mean, these people are amazing. Beverly Mack and Jean Boyd. She's remarkable. Like, this, this lady who wrote the preface, 
uh, Gene Boyd. I mean, it's like, let me just read you some of these pieces. She says that, that so Asma, she's the daughter of Shahu Danfodio, uh, Uthman Danfodio, who was like, some people call him Sheikh al-Islam. He was in Nigeria. They had a, they had a jihad movement there. They established a Khilafah, the Sokoto Caliphate. And they controlled like a large part of West Africa during that time. And they, he was like a revivalist for Islam in that region. A lot of people were Muslim, but they were kind of like at varying degrees of their association with Islam. Some very far, actually, some closer, so on and so forth. And he was working to try to revive that in the region. And eventually, through those efforts, he ran into some problems with the governments that were in that area, as you probably imagine. So like some of the kings that had these cities in, in Nigeria, they, they were known for having these like really big parties and stuff and doing different things. And the sheikh was not really in favor of that and spoke about it, that he was against it. And so eventually, he was like kicked out and they had to, you know, Usual things happen. But this lady, she says that she was, um, you know, like Nana Asma'u was famous and she, she lived, um, I think it's on the back here, 1793 to 1864. 1793 to 1864. So she's recent, so she's she's living at like the end of that period, okay? Um, she said, you know, she went to Nigeria, this lady, she went to Nigeria to teach. And she's British, so like, you know, Britain colonized Nigeria. So she's going there and she's teaching in these girls' schools and stuff and everything she's teaching has nothing to do with the people's actual history. Has to do with like how the colonizers came and conquered them and like all these type of things and she starts to feel like she wants to learn more and um, <coughs> when she starts trying to like learn about the history of the people there she said everything was all paths led to Sokoto uh, in terms of 19th century history so when she, she initially went in 1955 to Nigeria and then she went back in 1967 and uh, she started to just like I want to figure it out. So she starts to ask people, she starts to interview people, she starts going to these different areas and like, you know, villages and different things. And finally she finds out about like, you know, who was Othman Danfodio and who were his daughters and like who were the, who were the major figures in, in this movement that happened. And everything is like, what's amazing about it is that she spent like, let's see, she left Nigeria in 1982 and she had gone back in, what did I say, 65? 67. So she spent like all those 15 years, like literally going to villages and tracing down transcripts and talking to people and trying to translate things and so on and so forth, just so she could figure out what was this woman's work. And she's the one who like translated these poems and did all these different things. And then another researcher came, the other author of the book. She said she came and she started asking like, you know, the usual, forgive me for saying it, but like the usual Orientalist Westerner type questions to the people that you're interviewing. So like she says she was talking to people in the towns and she was she was speaking to someone and she said in uh, a house of woman poet challenged, like she asked this poet basically whether or not she, she has permission from her husband to write, mm -hmm. right? So the poet got angry and she was like, 
how are you asking me if I have permission from my husband to write? And then she said, did Nana Asma'u ever have her, ever, ever have her husband's permission? And, uh, and then she's like, go to Sokoto and find Jean Boyd. She'll show you Nana Asma'u. So she's like, okay. So she goes and she finds this lady. She finds like the other British lady. And she, she talks to her and she's like, yeah, she's been dead for 150 years. <laughs> you, know, like, you missed her, but let me tell you about her. And they start to like actually do her work and figure it out and translate it and all this stuff. And that's how this book comes. Which to me is remarkable because like, how do we have research with the translation into English of all these poems and who this person was and everything they did and everything? Some like random... British lady that went to Nigeria and wanted to know about the people and spent 15 years of her life probably like with you know upset stomachs and <laughs> food poisoning <laughs> like who knows what living in these places trying to like get this knowledge and then and while she was working by the way this wasn't like her job she said that all the people that were bringing the, that worked with her to bring this material together they all had their day jobs and they were doing this on the side, going and traveling and researching and stuff, which is just, it's re amazing. So anyways, we'll begin. Uh, again, she lived from 1793 to 1864. Uh, one of the things that's notable is that she was a popular teacher. She was an author. She was known for social reform, for her position in society, so on and so forth. She also managed a household of several hundred, you know, so like she was the head of a household that had many members. Um, one of the things that comes up here too is that like people didn't live in single-family homes right so they lived in family compounds you have multiple families living there and then there's like the matriarch she's gonna handle everything she's like everything's gonna go back to her so she's doing that she's doing all these other things um, Sheikh Othman Danfodio uh, who was known to be kind of like it's interesting, there, during his period, there was a number of people that kind of did similar things. Shawaliullah Dahlawi was very similar in South Asia. Um, and they were like, and this is going to be confusing probably for some people. They were like Quran and Sunnah Muslims who were generally Sufis. So it like, seems contradictory for, for like the average Western audience person because they're like, what does that mean? How are they Quran and Sunnah but they're Sufi? I thought all Sufis are people of deviation. But like now you're talking about Quran and Sunnah, like how does this make sense? That, that's generally, like that was Shah Wali Allah's approach. That was uh, Sheikh Uthman Danfodio's approach. So they were like very kind of in a sense sober Sufis. But they were, they were known for, they, they were Qadri. Um, which is its own conversation we don't need to get into we don't want to derail it too much but it keeps coming up in the book so I'm mentioning it so she ran this she ran this house and um, it says that the driving factor of her life and that of the community was their concern for the sunnah the exemplary way of life set forth by the Prophet Muhammad that's like everything in this book is going to go back to her commitment to the sunnah um, we said that she was she was born in 1793 uh, her father, uh, Shahu Usman Danfodio, he started to really preach in 1774-1775. And they had like this town area that they were living in um, that their extended family had been there for a number of generations. Okay, So like basically what he would do is they have their home base. Like her, her father, they had been scholars for like 10 generations. Okay, they're like 11 and 12th generation of scholars. And they live in this little village 
with like 60 families, 60, 60 members, like all these different families and stuff, had 60 households, right? And all of them study from each other and they learn from each other. The women teach, the men teach, everyone teaches, and like they grow up, this is their system. And then what he would do is he's growing up there, he's teaching and his daughter teach, learns with him and so on. And then he would go out to the different villages and make da'wah to the people. And he would call them and teach them, to, teach them about Islam and call them to, to follow the, the sharia and stuff like that. And eventually, like I said, he started to get into um, some problems with the local kings of these uh, provinces and stuff. So he actually had to make hijra. That's uh, like a major event in their life. They had to make hijra. Um, and they leave where they're from and they go like a little bit more distant. And eventually that would kind of like result in these uh, jihad wars that happened in that region until their community became established. So she grew up in the middle of that conflict. Right? Like, so she's growing up in the middle of that conflict. She's seeing her father. She's seeing the stances he takes, the way he's dealing with the people, so on and so forth. And so her work has a number of different uh, angles. Number one is the preservation of everything that her father did. Right, so like, even after there's notable figures who, after they would die, her and her husband actually work together to chronicle it. So you know, like her father dies, her and her husband chronicle it. Her uncle dies, her and her husband chronicle it. So they're like actually the chronicles. That's why he says scribe also, or she says scholar and scribe. So this is number one. Number two is uh, she had a heavy influence in the education of women. So she was very clear that like if we don't, especially as their state is getting solidified, new people are coming into the religion, some people are on the fringes, so on and so forth. If we're not very serious about how we educate the women, we're going to lose entire generation of people. Like we have to go in there and make sure that they're taught and so on. And so like the main thing that she really worked on was teaching women and having like a cadre of women that she taught who would go into these villages and teach other people and writing things that they would learn which will come to but like a lot of her work is in poetry form and they're like poems in various languages she was fluent in four languages so she would write at different levels depending on who the audience is so generally like if she was writing for scholars she would write in Arabic and then if she was writing for an educated class of people she would write in a different language and then uh, if she was writing for the general population, then she would write in Hausa, which was like the general population, what they spoke there. So she'd have different tiers of writing and stuff that she would deal with. Uh, so this is number two. And number three is she devoted her life to reconciliation and peaceful coexistence, using her wit, her imagination, and her immense prestige to find pragmatic solutions to the problems that faced her. So you see, like I said, that she, you know, they have like this uh, chart. Basically, there's her father who was the head of the state, and then her half-brother who became the head of state after him, and then there was her and her husband. So basically, like, from her brother's line come all of the khulafa up to today in this place. Up to today, all of the rulers of that area come from her brother's line, and all of the wazirs of that area, like the ministers, they all come from her line. So it's like from from that time up to now. It's eighteen eighteen hundreds up to, to now up to now. Uh, and then before that, again, her family was a family of scholarship and so on. Uh, they lived in a rural setting, and their faith was fostered through rigorous homeschooling based on Islamic texts and treaties that are revered that were revered in the household. I should think about like these are people in very kind of like in American terms like very country settings. You know, 
it's very rural. It's not s super developed and, and like really um, huge infrastructures and stuff like this. They're living in a small town. But look at this quote. They grew up like that. They're learning. The Shah himself had a library of hundreds of volumes, all of which were handwritten and stored very carefully in traditional goatskin satchels. It is not known exactly how many books were in his possession, but some indication may be drawn from the fact that in one book alone that he composed, he cited 102 authorities. So like you have all your books are handwritten. They're carried around in little like bags that you have to transport with you everywhere you go. And you write a book and you have 102 different books that you're referencing in the book that you wrote. While you're, by the way, like running a state and making jihad and everything else, right? Like, this is, these, they were uh, amazing people. So he himself, her father, he himself, he wrote hundreds of poems, tracts, treaties, weighty volumes. There's a, in English, there's uh, some people that have worked uh, on this a lot. Uh, Sheikh Muhammad Sharif, the, uh, I forget what it's called, Sankore Institute, I think. Um, they have a website There's a bunch of the Shah whose writings are translated You can find the PDFs on there and stuff It's quite interesting um, So they, they, all these writings They covered everything you know, And a lot of it com Comes around the usual themes of Iman, Islam, Ihsan Which we're going to come to later um, What's interesting is that At the same time that they were very scholarly And the same time that they did all these works And everything so It says at the same time the practicalities of daily life Were not to be ignored because they're very serious about the Sunnah. So if you see what they're going to say here, is that the Shah who is said to have made rope, his brother Abdullahi bound arrowheads to their shafts. <coughs> his son Bello tended his own garden, and his daughter Asma'u inevitably participated in the operation of the domestic sphere. The Sunnah required respect for the humble tasks necessary to daily life and the avoidance of materialistic attitudes. So they didn't have an issue with it. Like they do amazing scholarship, and at the same time, the Sunnah teaches us that we also respect the daily things that you do, like the mundane things that you do every day. You're going to wash the dishes, and you're going to knead the dough, and you're going to fix the arrow, and you're going to make some rope, and whatever it is that you need to do, you're going to do. Uh, the Shah himself wrote In his own house the Prophet repaired sandals Sewed by himself Gave fodder to his camel used for carrying water Swept the house Ate with the servant And kneaded dough with him And carried his own goods from the market A job which he allowed nobody else to do for him He's writing about the Prophet right? like He would carry his own stuff He knead his own dough He'd sew his own clothes There's nothing wrong with that And he's the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he'd carry his own things and that's something he wouldn't let other people do. Uh, there's a hadith that says, Sahibu Sahibu This means the person who owns the thing has more right to carry it. <laughs> like they are everyone's trying to carry his stuff. And he's like, the one who actually owns it, they have more right to carry it. I'm gonna carry my own stuff. Right? Um, so they're saying like this is and this is an important characteristic of the Muslims. Is that you uh, the Sunnah teaches us to deal with things at like the highest level possible in terms of ihsan, in terms of understanding, in terms of interaction, institution building, so on and so forth. And at the same time, you could do the most mundane and humble thing, and it's not an issue because, again, you know that's the way of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. There's a narration that the the Shahu's son Bello quoted. 
where the Prophet said, Allah wants his servants to have means of getting a living. The Prophet Jesus said he met with a man and asked him what he did for a living. The man replied that piety was his profession. Whereupon Jesus said to him, And who feeds you? The man replied, My brother. Whereupon Jesus said, Your brother is more pious than you are. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, maybe there's some slight nuance in this, but the idea is that people should work, and there's no problem with that. Um, especially, you know, maybe in societies that, like, you working doesn't mean that you're going to be working 12 hours a day. You know, means that you're going to do some things and you have time for other stuff. You should definitely work then. So scholarship in this community was founded on an ethos reflected in this story. So it would have to be practical and not esoteric. So like generally their teachings weren't these like high in the sky, Sufi type esoteric metaphysical things. They were very practical, very down to the ground, dealing with the people. The people they're dealing with are shepherds, they're farmers. They're not going to get into this uh, high in the sky stuff. So she was. So it says about her and Nana Asma'u that she was as comfortable in intellectual debate as she was in domestic endeavors, understanding both to be of equal importance to life in this world. So this is very important, right? So she should be in the scholarly conversation, should be in her house. And both of them are fine. Like this, we, we do all of these things in this world. It's not like we just do one and we have, we're useless in the other one type thing, right? Um, the, the many books... You know, they were all written by her father, her uncle, herself. They were all practical guides for teaching people how to live. Um, she, like her colleagues, wrote for the betterment of the community and the promotion of the sunnah, not for personal fame or gain. Authorship was not owned by the individual, nor was personal credit expected for such authorship. What was produced in a literary vein was meant for the spiritual nourishment of the community and was deemed equal in importance to the production of grain in the fields. So basically, one of the themes that's going to come up in this in the, her work over and over again is that it's about the community. And when you think about things on a communal level, you realize that everyone has their role to the betterment of the community. So like, yeah, she's writing a poem. That's great. People are going to learn from the poem. Someone else is working in the fields and harvesting the grain. That's important, too. And someone else is like tying rope and making ropes. That's important too. Someone else is building buildings. That's important too. Because all of that is needed for the community. And so no one person is like more important than the other in their contribution to the overall community. Uh, one of the things that you'll see that's really unique in her poetry as well is that she wrote poetry eulogizing people who are common people. Like normally when, when people write, they write about the kings and they write about the leaders and so on. So there's a couple passages that will come up where she's like, she'll write the elegy about her neighbor who was just like a regular, she was a regular woman. Like she's just regular everyday person in the neighborhood. But she writes about her. She says she was pious. She always took care of her family, this and this and this and this. So she gave kind of like, uh, they, and, and you see that with her father and others is that they, they had this huge project, but they were very down to the ground with the people. They weren't like hanging out in palaces or something. Um, <coughs> I'm going to read you the, the quote here. And again, like, uh, keep in mind again that like this, the, first of all, West Africa is filled with Sufism. Some of it is extremely off the wall. Some of it is extremely reasonable. It's generally the case of Muslim history. <laughs> you know, like, there's people who claim some sort of Sufism or Tasawwuf or whatever it might be, and they actually care to follow the teachings of the religion. And then there's other people who claim 
an attachment to this thing and they're like completely off the wall. They make up whatever they feel like. We talked about it last week, I think, right? Uh, we spent some time on that last week, this idea of people just basically use that as, as an excuse to do whatever they want. But know that like in the context of, of this group of people, they were very knowledgeable people. It wasn't like a f- fairy tale type stuff. Um, so Sufism does not require a particular physical setting, nor is it about a teacher's gaining a cult, of, of cult following of students. Although the guidance of a teacher is certainly necessary, a teacher's aim in Sufism is to guide students toward union with divine truth in whatever life circumstances they may encounter. Asma'u's education system had no buildings and granted no degrees. It was uniquely suited to the practical needs of a community dedicated to the Sunnah. The first 10 years of Asma'u's life were devoted to scholarly study and were relatively stable, but when she was 11, her community emigrated to escape persecution and the jihad battles began. There followed a decade of itinerancy and warfare through which Asma'u continued her studies, married, bore children, and wrote poetic works. So I think the the big thing to point out here is that 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 sentence about how her education was an education that had no buildings and granted no degrees. No buildings, no degrees. She's fluent in four languages and she wrote countless works on all different areas of, of, of knowledge, right? But there's no building and there's no degree. Now, sure, like, yeah, have, have a building, have a degree, so on and so forth. But it begs the, the question that has to be begged in the end is, what is education? You, know, you can put buildings around it. You can put n- names on, on, on certificates. You can give people degrees. Do whatever you want so they can get their job and just make materialism out of it. But what is an actual education? So these people were people that she didn't need a classroom. What she need a classroom for? You just find someone who has learning and you spend time with them and you take from them and you read with them and you study with them and you get what you need. Degree, no degree, who cares? Right? She doesn't, like, these are not the concerns of this world. And uh, I think that that's really remarkable. Up to today, you'll find people that do that in the realm of Islamic studies. Maybe they don't really have a degree or maybe the degree that they have is really low level degree. It's like a bachelor's level degree, but the education that that person have is beyond the PhD level, you know? And then you'll find other people who they finished an entire PhD and you talk to them and they can't even hold like a reasonable conversation. You're like, is this for real? How did you get this thing? Did you just steal everyone else's work? Because I know that that happens a lot in academia too. You know, so like the, you know, yes. Is the standards back then, if you're saying that in, in the school there was no uh, degree, um, would, would people still be able to be considered shapes after her education and going to her school? And then, like now, this does the qualification for being a sheikh has changed over time? Yeah, now the qualification for being a sheikh is if you have a non-profit board that's willing to hire you, you're a sheikh. <laughs> or if you have enough followers on social media, you're a sheikh. Like, generally speaking, our community doesn't have any sort of actual standard for this in reality. and like, actual practical reality of our community, we don't really usually think about that. Like, if people, if enough people call you a sheikh, then you're a sheikh. <laughs> and at some level, there's a truth in that. Like there is like a, a pure recognition and acceptance of a person's responsibility and role, but um, I think that that's it's definitely changed. Like, and it's it varies from place to place. Like, if I was to go, and we knew this very clearly. Like when when we're in Egypt, you know, I could graduate from the program that I graduated from, as far as I know. Um, that's its own story <laughs> but as far as I know I graduated um, and 
no one there is going to call me a sheikh, most likely, unless they're like a teacher of mine who's trying to encourage me. <laughs> but you can come here and everyone's going to call you a sheikh because like you went to Al-Azhar and you spent time or whatever. And right? then you're, and you're, if you're in Pakistan, everybody's sheikh. Everyone's sheikh because that's their last name. <laughs> 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 or like other words that we use, like in, in the Darsh Nizami system, you know, you have like a seven-year program and then they say that you, you finished your alim program. Like... In Egypt, for example, like in the Arab world, it's mustahil for you. It's impossible for someone to be called an alim after studying for seven years. Like there's no way you're going to be called a scholar after seven years. But now you have all this like difference in terminology, right? Now, in, in that's all kind of like in the modern realm of these institutions that exist that are mostly kind of like modeled themselves after Western institutions. You know, Al-Azhar is modern after a Western institution. Most of them are, you know, you have an undergrad, you have the master's, you have the PhD, that system. That wasn't the old system. The old system was like, you, you know which text you need to master in each field of Islamic studies, and they're known. Like, these are base-level texts in the Maliki school. These are mid-level texts. These are advanced texts. And someone who studied them with some level of proficiency will be known to have accomplished that. And so, and they'll usually have some sort of ijazah, like some sort of permission, sometimes more reliable than others. Um, and they will grant that to the person. So it's not like a degree in our sense, but I'm sure she had ijazat, you know. Um, maybe the author didn't understand that. Or I don't know, Allah But that doesn't require a building in any sense. I mean, even the the old Al-Azhar, before they turned it into like a Western university, it was just the masjid. You just go in the masjid and the shiuch are sitting under the pillars and you go through all the pillars and you study all the sciences and there's only one degree. You know, that's so they didn't have confusion either because there's only one degree. Like you either master all of Islamic studies and you graduate after your oral exam in front of a panel of the ulama and you're an alim now, or you don't. Like you're <laughs> someone, you're someone that didn't, didn't get there. And they don't have like a time limit on it. You know, it could take you six years, could take you 20 years. It doesn't make any difference. You just study. So it's, you know, these weren't like, especially in her case, like these aren't, you're not studying these things so that you can get a job. So it's not, it's not the same, you know. Anyways, they're committed to the sunnah. Allah help us. In 1807, at the age of 14, she married. Uh, her husband Gidadu, who later became the chief wazir of the caliphate. And at the age of about 20, so from 14 to 20, she doesn't have any kids. From age, age 20, she had the first of her six sons, and he died as an infant while she was away visiting her father. In 1820, three years after her father's death, as the jihad raged, she had two more children to attend to. She wrote her first long work, The Way of the Pious, uh, which is a book about morality. She also collated her father's manuscripts and became part of the team which had already set about organizing a new Muslim community and the caliphate throughout this time of like warfare and everything else. And then for the next 45 years, she continued to write poems and prose works uh, about the sunnah, about women's roles in the community and so on. Uh, her, her role, uh, it is likely she began this work organizing women teachers while in her early 30s and her her like role as the leader of the women was acknowledged by the time she was 40. So she spent a long time in this role. She had a title that meant the mother of all. That was like a title that they would give when the woman gets to like this matriarch position. 
she gets this title mother of all so she's that's how she's looked upon in the community and again she's training these women that are going to go out to um, to these places so what she would do basically is she would train them and then they have these poems and the poems can they have like a, a their own local customs in that regard of meter and poems and how you how you write them and how you sing them and so on and so forth so she would write these poems on these different things and then the people who are studying with her they're going to memorize the poems and that poem is then going to serve as a mnemonic device when they go back to teach and some of the poems too that she wrote were like one of the points that the author makes were kind of like so imagine you don't have mass technology right and you're going into these little villages and pockets and people are living in places and like you you're, you're studying with someone who's well-known, but you're going to go into all these different places. People are going to say things. People are gonna, especially if you're a woman, as a teacher, like inevitably you're going to face some challenges, right? So like one of the poems she wrote, which was really interesting, is called uh, Sufi Women. And it basically talks about like Sayyida Fatima, Sayyida Khadija, the wives of the Prophet and them famous women scholars and like ascetics throughout history and so on. And she puts them all in this poem. So like now if you're a student and you memorize this poem, like imagine you're a young woman and you're a student and you go to her and she's like the mother to you and she holds you and she takes care of you and she teaches you this poem and you go back to your people and like you start to face all these challenges like in your head still, you have. Like there's this one and there's this one and there's this one and there's this one and there's this one. And she names like a lot of women. And at the end of it she says, and there's this one from our community, like our generation of people in place. And she names like two of them. And then she says, and there's about a hundred more of them that I didn't name, but like we're, who memorized the Quran, who are people of piety, who are women of conduct, and so on and so forth. And she's like giving this to them in the poem, and they would memorize these things and take them back to the people, which is, which was like a really effective teaching mechanism for them because again that was known to them, and you didn't have to be literate even, right? Like in order to sing the poem, you didn't have to be literate. So these women teacher would they would go into like the homes they'd sit with the wives they teach them the poem and they're in the compound and like everyone's singing the poem together right and someone else might overhear it and they learn some parts so it was like a, a interesting um, community dynamic going on with that again she was educated at home by scholarly women as well as by her father she was fluent in Fulfulde, Hausa, Tamechek and Arabic and she committed the entire Quran to memory uh, she educated women at all levels and cooperated with her with the caliph Muhammad Bello, her brother, in literary ventures which included translating, adapting, and versifying a work on Sufi women. So one of the things that was interesting about this point, when it's um, when it gets into this, is that um, actually I don't know if it was this point or not, but I'll just say it now anyways. Is that her brother had written a work actually on like women and he asked her to translate it to one of the local languages and kind of like versify it and what's interesting the author was saying when you look at them side by side is that they're not the same so and her brother's the khalifa her brother's the caliph right so like they're very close he's running the state she's married to the wazir she's the head teacher of the women so on and so forth he tells her can you write this work and translate the thing that i wrote and versify it and stuff and when she goes to do it, it's, it must have been understood that she has her own literary like freedom, 
you know like basically she's understanding from him I want you to write a work on this it doesn't have to be exactly my work because when she wrote it it was different like the, em the things she emphasized were different the biographies she included were not in his some of them so on and so like she she wrote it very much like you know he's basically a man writing about women and he's writing about them in a very particular way and when she goes and does it she does it in a different way which is really interesting and again he's the Khalifa so it has to be like he knew that she was doing that and and he was okay with it and he let it you know like that's that's fine that's the way that will function and no problem right uh, so she, she drew these rural women into an educational network which has survived to this day and through her poetry seized every opportunity to draw the attention of the caliphate leaders to their responsibilities so she's always like on both sides of it it's not just to the people what do you need to do but even the rulers she's reminding them what they need to do um, and her, her again her husband was very busy and he was very scholarly as well they say that her renown reached as far as Mauritania, which is known because there were, there were letters that scholars had written from Mauritania in the same period that were written to her and written about her and stuff like that. So her, her prestige had reached all the way over there. Uh, I really like this last, the ending of this chapter, what they said, so, it would, so I'm going to read it directly. Um... It is clear that not only was she privileged in the Sokoto community by virtue of her blood ties, but she was revered there and beyond because of her spirituality, intellect, and literary capability. Her life was at once atypical and one that could read readily be understood as a model for those less educated, less revered. A central figure in her community, Asma'u, offered guidance that was valued, welcomed, and esteemed by a wide range of individuals. Nana Asma'u's life defied stereotypes, but it was not an anomaly. This is a big point that the authors are making in the book. It's like, yeah, she was unique, but she wasn't against, like, it was the case that there were women scholars who were active in the community who taught men and women. That, w that was the nature of this community. Um, so in her time, it was necessary and appropriate for her to be a Muslim woman who was not subordinated, a scholar without a university, and a Sufi who did not retreat from the world. Her life demonstrated the practical side of Qadiriya Sufi devotion responsive to the immediate needs of a period of turmoil. Nana Isma'u's role as a mentor to others so shows that she cannot be dismissed as an exception in her time. She was a woman to be emulated. So I really like this, you know, the, uh, she was a woman who was not subordinated, a scholar without a university, and a Sufi who did not retreat from the world. This is like a really baller statement. Uh, the next chapter is kind of like it's called Qadriya Sufism, the Quran and the Sunnah. So, um, I don't. I'll just bring out some points here. The main thing is that, like the whole thing revolves around the Iman, Islam, Ihsan paradigm, which we've talked about many times before. It's in the Hadith of Jibril salam that you have Islam that deals with the outer rulings, you have Iman that deals with the mental frames and cognates and beliefs and so on. Then you have Ihsan that deals with the work of the heart. Um, so it says, for example, she acquired from her father respect for the careful balance between the realities of building an Islamic state and living a blameless life. So this was very like, okay, I have to build this thing, but I have a code of ethics that I have to live by too. So how am I? She, she saw from her father and learned to appreciate the delicacy of that balance. 
The fascination of the Shahu's personality is that it combined the fundamental characteristics of the Sufi, you know, they want to be all about spirituality and everything else, with those of the lawyer theologian who derives his knowledge from his understanding of the Sharia. So her character exhibited a similar balance of these characteristics. Okay. Um, it was largely, and again, it was largely through a commitment to the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Uh, and they didn't have, again, like their teachings were very easy to follow. They're not these really complicated weirdo things. They're very simple, very straightforward. Follow the sunnah, you know, worship Allah, stay away from backlighting, like standard stuff that you're going to hear. Um, all contemporary accounts of her father. So he gets into like this thing about how her father demanded obedience from the people. You know, he's like the sheikh, he's the head. He demanded obedience from the people. But at the same time, uh, he wouldn't have succeeded if he was arrogant you know, in the way that he did. And all contemporary accounts emphasize his grace and his gentleness. And it's important to understand that his inherents were ordinary people, not the couriers of the chiefs. Um, Asma'u's husband, in underlining the point, said that Allah helped him by ensuring that his followers were all common people, like those who followed the Prophet them. And that he, like the Prophet ﷺ, had sympathy with the common man. They weren't, you know, again, they were very close to the ground type thing. Um, some other stuff, not really important. Okay, keep going. I don't have that many notes here. Mm, even when she's, like, writing elegies about her brother, about the families, like, the, she didn't focus on, um, like, his standing his position, his power, his authority, stuff like that. That wasn't her focus when she's eulogizing someone. Her focus would be on the behavior that gives that person honor. So like he was generous, he was good to his guests. He was that was that was the focus. Focus is not on these uh, these other things, you know. So this was written about people forgotten by she focused on human qualities rather than achievements. It indicates clearly that she valued character and not status. That was her focus. Um, she also, like commonly in her poetry, wrote things that if someone's more advanced, they'd benefit from it. And if they're very like beginner level, they also benefit from it. So she had kind of like this way, the topics that she would weave in and the things that she would talk about were balanced in that way. Um, she wrote, one of the things she wrote, for example, was like a poem. Some people thought it was like, you know, West. some people don't understand. They thought it wasn't really important, but she had wrote a poem that lists the 114 names of the Qur'an in order, like the chapters of the Qur'an, the surah. So the person can, it's like 30 lines or something, I forget what it was right now. So the per, like if they were learning how to read, for example, because not everyone is even literate, right? So they're teaching them how to read, they're teaching them how to write, they might teach them this poem. So in the course of like a very basic lesson, the person now knows all of the chapters of the Qur'an in order. And then when they go to memorize it, it's easier for them. They can hold everything in the place and so on and so forth. And they can just reference the poem. So it was actually really important as an educational tool. Although some people looked at it and thought it was like really simple type thing, you know. Why did she even do that type thing? Um, she wrote about her father. She wrote about her brother. We already talked about that. Not that much time left. I'm going to skip that stuff. Um... So it says about the town, 
that she was living in, right? Let me read you this. They sought to live in the world without attachment to it and focused on equally on mysticism and spirituality and also following the sunnah, the example of the Prophet wasallam. Uh, these men and women that were in this community, again, 67, uh, the homes of 67 men and their families, that was like their immediate community where all of this started, uh, were significantly different from those in the surrounding areas. They were neither peasants, uh, they weren't nomadic, they weren't power-wielding couriers to kings or rich merchants. This town that we were in, Dejan, was unique. It was remote, being several days travel from the nearest walled city and very rural. Its houses, the outlines of which can still be seen, were built of small stones coated with wattle and daub. The Shah whose house where his family quarters and his own private rooms are still discernible also contained the last resting places of his father and possibly of Maimuna, Asma'u's mother. His students met him under the acacia trees outside his home. This is the way that it happened. There's a tree outside, we go sit there, learn, do whatever you need to do. Uh, but they had a very strong work ethic. So his brother, Abdullah, he said, whoever sleeps the sleep of the tired has done right, is forgiven, and wakes in the morning of God's pleasure. So if you go to sleep at night and you're tired from the work that you did, then they sleep a sleep that is, uh, that is filled with forgiveness. And when they wake in the morning, they wake to God's pleasure. Like this is the way that you're supposed to work in this life. So they were in the scholarly setting, but at the same time, they were like that. Uh, it says, work was prayerful action, and all aspects of life at Dejjal were governed and regulated by an Islamic ethos. There was no such thing as a secular life. I think that uh, this is a really, I think that our community is beginning to struggle with this one a little bit. But we've started, we've started to, like, we'll say outwardly that Islam is a way of life, but actually, in reality, we compartmentalize everything, and like Islam is just the thing that we do when we come to the Muslim space, and that's not wha- how they understood Islam, nor is it the way that Islam was ever understood. So, like, and that's why we think like when I'm going to work and I'm struggling and I don't have time to pray as much as I used to pray and so on and so forth, that I'm not as good, or like I'm not able to do. These. That's because we actually, in our minds, we secularize something that wasn't secularized. Because who told you that your work is not good? Like for you to go to work and, and make halal income and take care of people and take care of your family and everything else, what you need to do, that's actually a really good thing. And that for you is worship. That's prayerful. So she, sa- she says work was prayerful action. And Islam governed all of these uh, areas of life. Every member of the community was expected to pay close attention to the regulations governing each and everything. Farmers were advised that the effects of farming extended to animals, birds, and insects. They understood this, right? Like, what you're going to do in your farming is not just about your crop. It's about the land, it's about the animals, it's about the insects, it's about uh, a man was expected to know his land, what best to plant there, and the appropriate tools to use. Handwriting of manuscript copiers was to be clear and easily read, not only for the very educated. Each Arabic letter had to be distinct, and the vowel was clear, so on and so forth. They had an understanding that like, there's ways that we should do things, and there's ways that we shouldn't. They wouldn't use cheap ink, because cheap ink would rot the paper, and it showed disregard for waste and contempt for the work which had been written out, for it might be a rare work and not easily found. Right? So then now, what, you just wrote it out with this cheap ink, now it's a waste. It, one of the things this makes me think of is like my, ex- my impression of construction work in the United States over the last, like, <laughs> southern, let's just make it southern, southern California. 
construction work in Southern California over like the last 30, 40 years, everything's a mess. We used to live in this place. There was a lawsuit against the construction company with the developer, which is the same developer that built a bunch of stuff in Irvine. Because like literally every few days in our community, and the, the houses, the townhomes were built like in the last 10 years. Every few days there was a plumber in the community because the pipe was busting. Every few days. Like our pipe busted, they had a big leak and everything. They're like, just call the developer, they have to fix it because we have a lawsuit against them. Like everything is just built shabby, not done right. It's not, it breaks down after a while. The products that you have, they break down after a while. Like there's not, there's just like a, 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 a and part of it's our fault, right? Because we just want really cheap things. So I want the, and, and I, I, I can swear I read a hadith on this one time and I can't find it. That was about, like, that it literally said that not to buy cheap things. And I've been looking for this thing. I'm trying to find it. Like, it's in the Taj. I read it in the Taj. I don't know where I read it in there. It's five volumes, all hadith, so good luck. Um, but, you know, the point is either way. Like, when you buy cheap things, that has an impact. Like, yeah, sometimes you don't have a whole lot and you're trying to get by and whatever. It's not, I'm not trying to, you know, be harsh on people who are making budget-based decisions, right? But the point, when we get used to that and then everything becomes just, so they wouldn't use cheap ink. When they slaughter animals, they're very particular about the way that they slaughter the animals, the way that the animals were treated, um, the edib that you have in daily life and so on and so forth. Um, <coughs> let me move on I'm going to finish in just a minute or two Inshallah um, uh, I'm going to read this At the domestic level Religious doctrine permeated every detail of life Asma'u learned to eat with her right hand after first invoking God's blessing. She dressed simply and did not nap during the day because this was said to lead to laziness. She was, however, encouraged to play after school to balance serious endeavors with relaxation. She did not sleep on a mattress because that would have made her accustomed to luxury. She was taught to be humble and respectful, patient and quiet, and to avoid asking for unnecessary things. Sometimes people read stuff like that and they're like, oh, she was taught to be quiet. Yeah, men are supposed to be taught to be quiet too. <laughs> the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is to speak only with the volume that's necessary for the person to hear you. So, like someone tell America about that. <laughs> it's like everything is so loud. Speak with the volume that is necessary in order for people to hear you. Uh, so it's not like she's not the only one being taught that. Everyone is being taught that. Right. Uh, she had to be obedient, listen, give way to superiors. They had an understanding of like hierarchy. Um, do the correct ablutions before prayer, learn the law, revere wise people, apply herself to reading the Quran. Good acts were praised and rewarded. Misdemeanors of a trivial nature were ignored the first time around, but further offenses were met with quiet reprimands. So this was like their life was very disciplined, you know. Um, they and they had plans around that and so on. So I'll probably um, she was chosen to be the leader of the women by her father himself. And uh, but she was not the first woman to be relied upon. Obviously, the Shah, whose mother and grandmother had been his teachers, in his immediate family there were women who were known to be uh, by these titles of honorifics and so on. 
and she began to assume her leadership duties when she was still a young woman. Asma'u was mature and accomplished when she was 20, an age at which it was common for women to be married and to have already undertaken adult responsibilities. By this time, she had been married for six years and had one child. And she was already educated, everything. Like, she was fluent in four languages. Like <laughs> by the time she was 20, right? So these were uh, very strong people. We'll finish, inshallah, next time. There is a little bit left, and then we'll read some of... Uh, some of the poems that she wrote to get a kind of like a feel for it and then we'll wrap that up inshallah subhanakum bihamdik any questions or comments as soon as you have something okay before we continue yeah because i was going to do it and then i remembered that you were going to do it so alhamdulillah sure I'd also like to acknowledge that my father is here today, Abdul Qadir, Alhamdulillah, has a really good name, Abdul Qadir, um, so he's here with us today, he's kind of like me, he doesn't really like attention and stuff, but <laughs> I, I can't really, um, or I'm kind of like him, we share that uh, we don't really like that, but you know, I felt it would be remiss if I didn't at least mention it, so it's good to have you. <laughs> Anyone have any comments or questions or anything? Just yes. There's a number of them that are included at the end, but not all of them. Um, there is the same authors. They did publish a um, an independent work. I forget. It's called the Collected Works of Nana Esma'u. Um, Michigan State University Press published it. Um, so that one's more complete. This one is. This one is like mm, just under a hundred pages, like eighty pages of. Oops. Why do you think she hasn't been talked about enough in circles before? Because this is the first time I'm hearing about her. Mm -hmm. I'm Muslim forever. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> why do I think she hasn't been talked about? Um. First and foremost, I mean, it seems like, at least from the, what these authors are saying, that literature and stuff around that region seems to be less done around that history in that region. But, like I said, Sheikh Muhammad Sharif and his community have done a lot of work around the Shah whose works and writings and translating them and so on and so forth. So I think it depends on the pockets. Um, but, you know, I generally I think that when it comes to Muslim history, 
and awareness, I think that she has three things that are not working in her favor, which is that she's from sub-Saharan Africa, and that she was a Sufi, and that she was a woman. So, I mean, you know, we don't usually talk about Africa very much. Um, there are some things that I was reading this this week about, like, just like how many people are in, a how many Muslims are in Africa. Like I think it was saying there's like 80 million Muslims in Nigeria alone, which is like more than all of the Arab world. <laughs> so, like, this is that's one country, you know. Forget Senegal. I mean, and like all of West Africa. This was called this like in the old period. This was called the Western Sudan region. So, like below the Sahara, <coughs> that that belt was like all Muslim basically. And there's the Western Sudan side, and there's the Eastern Sudan side, which includes obviously Sudan today, and like Somalia and Ethiopia and all of these places. But like that whole middle section is is largely Muslim, like huge numbers of people. And one of the posts that I saw, I don't know the reliability of it, but it was saying that the Sokoto University that they had in that under the Khilafah could accommodate 25,000 students like at any given time. That's a huge number of people. Like, that's a, that's a, I mean, so there's a lot there, but, you know, for, some, for whatever reason, it doesn't come up. Um, Sheikha Tamara Gray, she wrote a good article about Nana Isma. It's on, on Medina Institute. It's like a nice little summary. Some people have done some things, but I don't know. A lot help us. It's a lot of things to talk about. I don't always get done. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, um, no, this is just a little uh, something I remembered. Um, it was interesting. My paternal grandpa was, was a Sufi, and he was a very wealthy man, but he used to say that he couldn't afford cheap things. Mm. And, that, and then I was, when you were talking, I was like, oh, my God, my grandpa. He couldn't afford cheap. He was very wealthy, but he used to say he couldn't afford cheap things. I mean, and by that he meant like buy one item that's gonna last. Mm -hmm. you keep rebuying the same cheap item, you're gonna end up spending more money. Yeah. 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 My parents are like that. Allah protect them and preserve them. You know, we the changing table that we use for my son, we used for my son, and that we use for my daughter is the same changing table and dresser that they used for me. Like it's the same one. It's lasted all of those years. <laughs> it's it's still it's not as it IKEA. IKEA is having major. They have major lawsuits against them because yeah. of how many infant deaths happen. Because mm -hmm. now it used to be that that was the kind of furniture that people used to go for. Mm -hmm. Well, specialized and heavy yeah. and, and approved. But you know, then cheaper furniture like IKEA started taking over. That is not childproof, but people yeah. go for it because it's cheap, and it's cheap. they're responsible for a lot of child deaths because yeah. of that. Yeah, I mean, but things used to, you know, sometimes you have things that last, last for a long time. You know, Sheikh, these, these days in some industries or some things, only cheap is offered. Yeah, it's hard to find anything else. Yeah. And offered at the higher price, at the <laughs> expensive thing. Yeah, even the expensive thing is cheap. Like when you actually <laughs> take it home and you start to touch it, <laughs> this thing is cheap. <laughs> what is going on? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean that's I, and I think Mona talked a lot about talked some about this in her session from what I was told that she did for the the women a couple weeks ago but you know and unfortunately like a lot of the expertise of traditional craftsmen and craftswomen and stuff that used to make really nice things it's just not sustainable anymore so yeah maybe you have someone who has a skill that they can actually make you something that's really nice but you know it's not going to 
they have to pay rent in Southern California, so forget it. They have to go into mass producing garbage and convincing you to buy it through Instagram ads so that, <laughs> <laughs> so that they can survive, you know? And it's just like a horrible circle. Uh, yeah. Um, was she uncommon for her time? It doesn't seem like it. I mean, from the way that they're talking about it in the book, it doesn't seem like it. You know, she was taught by grandmothers, she was taught by mothers, she was taught by this, she was taught by that. There were women who had these positions who were known to have titles that were used for that, you know. So it seems that there was a whole system around that. There was a quote somewhere in here, I didn't, uh, I didn't catch it right now, but about how like that was the nature of these West African Qadidi communities, was that men and women were prominent and that they were involved and they taught and so on and so forth. Even some, I've heard even up to now, like one scholar from Mauritania, I was listening to him talk one time, and he was saying that the way that they learned Sheikh uh, Diddu Shankiti, he's very famous, you know, Muhammad Diddu Shankiti, he said that like all of the history and hadith and like knowledge of biographies and all of that kind of stuff, he said we learn all of that from the women of our family when we were children. So he starts like saying, what's the, what's the lineage of Omar ibn Khattab? He's like, he's Omar ibn Khattab, ibn, 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 ibn. He drops like 20 <laughs> layers of the name. If you ever heard him before, that's the way he is. He's like a computer. He's like, all of that we learn from the women. The women knew all those things. They're the ones that taught us sirah. They're the ones that taught us the lives of the people, so on and so forth. He's like, that's my mother and my aunt and my grandmother and so on and so forth. But, you know, they didn't really have TV <laughs> they didn't have Netflix on demand and <laughs> Disney kids and stuff like that, you know. One sheikh from Mauritania, we met him one time we were in a desert, in a camp with him. It was the most amazing thing because we were like with him and then we traveled to the campsite. I've never seen anyone like in a campsite exactly as if they're in their living room, you know. He's like totally comfortable campsite because he's used to it. Like that's where he's actually, that's what he's used to, just being in the middle of nowhere with a campfire so he's like super comfortable relaxed he said you guys you know in america you go to amusement parks and you do different things when you want to have fun we we sit around the campfire and we exchange our quotations about tafsir from the different authors that we know <laughs> that's what we do <laughs> it's nighttime you want to relax here's the campfire let's exchange some tafsir <laughs> you know? have a different world have a, you know subhanallah well, that's the world they're living in that's all you're exposed to. You know, imagine like that's all. This, this little town that she's growing up in, that's all she's exposed to. Is scholarship and knowledge and learning and like every conversation. Imagine your whole community, every conversation that happens, that's what it is. And you're reading books and you're studying and you're copying, you're copying works because they say it later that like it was an ongoing copying process because the manuscripts would start to uh, come apart with the harsh conditions of the climate that they lived in. So they're always copying more, copying, recopying the things that need to be copied. So you're just like, it's the life you live. Anyone else? Yes. Good to see you, man. Mashallah. In the book, do they talk about like how the sister, the Sheikh, basically like applied the sun of her daily life? Because, you know, sometimes like, you know, you read all these athar and you read all these hadith, it's very male-oriented, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, <coughs> who is like, you know, like, you know, some 
communities focus on saying a far too much. Like the exemplar, like mm-hmm. who do they show like her examples of who like she really applied the summer for like didactic Yeah. I mean they give glimpses. I feel like, you know, and I think this is one of the challenges is that to really know that you kinda have to see it. You know, I and I, I feel like my wife was telling me, we were talking about it, because there's some pieces in here where it was saying that she would, like, go to the women's homes and, like, while they're cooking. You know, they're, like, doing their domestic whatever they need to do, and she's teaching them the poem. And they're memorizing it, and they're thinking about it. And, and then they, like, sing it while they're doing whatever they need to do. Like, that's how they pass the time. And at, But at the same time, she was obviously doing other things, too. It wasn't only domestic stuff. Um, but then I was telling my wife and I were talking about it and she said she had heard from some people she knew who studied in Syria and other places that they, they had known sheikhs like that that they would like teach the lesson while they're folding clothes like they're doing and the person comes and they read and the sheikha gives her commentary and she's doing whatever she needs to do like in her everyday life and you know and then they're part and then they go out they do this they do that but you know I feel like a lot of that is you know that's why part of our tradition is that you don't just learn from books is that you like you want to build communities of people that are committed to these ideas and have negotiated the details of how those different things play out because you can't really learn it like you don't know how am i going to do all of these things if you don't have an example of how to do it right it just becomes uh like you're saying like you're hinting at like it, it is very abstract in a sense you know like so what is the sunnah what is she doing um there's like some some hints here and there but not a whole lot of detail and so I said there's a lot of questions I still have like on the history of the whole thing on what happened but started it Taib let's uh, break for Isha and then people want to hang out they want to drink tea they want to talk they can do whatever they want to do inshallah subhanakallam bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha ila nashadu wa la asr inna nansana lafi khusr inna nadina amin wa amin salihat wa tawasu bin haqq wa tawasu bin sabah barakallahu fikum good to see everyone